Hello everybody and welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and the Métis nations of Alberta Region 3. And we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage beliefs and relationships to the land. SACPA is very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. I would like today to introduce our speaker, Keith Hirsch. Can solar energy breathe new life into abandoned oil well sites? Keith is a fourth generation Albertan, second generation in the oil and gas industry, and the originator of the Renew Well project. Over the course of his career, he provided research support for in situ oil sand productions, managed software development and played key roles in several consortia. Keith was introduced to, a, to renewable energy technology in 2003 while visiting extended family in Denmark. Later that year, he founded Elemental Energy Incorporated to explore how conventional and renewable energy systems could be combined for a more sustainable future. Since 2016, he has worked with key stakeholders to create economic, environmental and social benefits by repurposing Alberta's legacy oil and gas infrastructure to be, to be a foundation for renewable energy development. In addition to his technical experience, Keith is trained in group facilitation and conflict management. Keith, thank you so much for your time and for joining us and we're very excited to hear your presentation. Thank you, Annalise. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I guess we should uh, start with the first slide. Okay. Okay. So uh, just for a little bit of background, as uh, Annalise had mentioned, um, I'll be talking today about um, reusing abandoned oil and gas sites in Southern Alberta as a foundation for solar energy development. Um, and I, I should also mention that uh, that I'm having this opportunity today. I'm really grateful uh, to SACPA for the opportunity to speak to uh, the Lethbridge area. I'm actually born in Lethbridge on Blackfoot territory and grew up in the Tabor area. And I'm having this opportunity to present to you today from uh, from Vancouver Island in the lands of the Cowichan people, Coast Salish people on Vancouver Island. Um, so. I, the topic I'm going to be talking about today um, does certainly have connection to sort of the indigenous way of, of recognizing what resources are available in a, in a landscape and and uh, and how these resources can be used um, for future generations. Um, so I'll be talking today about uh, the Renewal Project in particular. Um, as you can see, we have many project partners. This project is funded uh, by the Municipal Climate Change Action Centre, which is um, part of Alberta uh, urban municipalities and also rural municipality associations, St. Mary River Irrigation District, um, the Municipal District of Tabor, Iracam Power, which is the power uh, generation component of SMRID, Tabor Irrigation District, and Raymond Irrigation District, and Renewal, which is uh, my company. So, to give a little background, um, we're facing a lot of challenges today in the energy business and in, in the energy industry. And this is certainly impacting Alberta and has been over this past decade. Um, 
And one of the major issues that we are facing is that we're seeing an increasing dependence on unconventional gas and oil, um, like the oil sands and, uh, and shale um, production. And this is because the conventional resources that we've depended on over the past decades are, are reaching an end. Now, we're also aware today that uh, COP26 is happening uh, in Scotland, and there's a lot of discussion about capping oil and gas production, coal production, and so on. And this can really be a major impact on economies like Alberta, where there's a high dependency on energy development. Um, but uh, good news is that even places like Saudi Arabia have recognized that there is a transition that is happening and that there are opportunities within this transition. So one of the things that I want to talk about is that there's been major breakthroughs, and this is certainly very visible in the Lethbridge area and southern Alberta, um, in terms of uh, renewable energy development. This is something that when I started renewable energy uh, back about 15, 17 years ago, wind was really the up-and-coming technology. Solar was something that was uh, a dream, but it was um, really not commercial at that time. Um, but one of the things that's happened is that uh, in the, uh, 2010, the U.S. Department of Energy put together a sunshot program aiming to uh, try to bring the cost of solar uh, generation to $1 a watt um, uh, within a decade. And they actually achieved that goal um, two years earlier than expected. So in 2018, um, they achieved that goal. Now, what that means is that the cost of energy production from solar um, has becoming cost competitive with fossil fuels in many places in the world. And we're seeing certainly the impact of that. You can see on the slide on the uh, right, um, the Claris Home Solar Project. Oh, I'm sorry, Annalisa. Yeah, I got it. I'm there. I'm Thank there. Thank you. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, that uh, the Claris Home Solar Project, which is one of the larger solar projects uh, in Canada. And we know now as well that the Traverse Solar Project is moving ahead uh, uh, north of Lethbridge and is going to be the biggest one in Canada. Now, um, so there's great news in the solar industry. Next slide. Um, but if we look at the uh, cost of the um, energy generation, um, you can see on the on the right hand graph that um, uh, solar has been dropping consistently over these past uh, over the past decades. We've gone from a price of about eight dollars a watt for solar generation down to a dollar a watt. Um, and as that cost has declined, the amount of solar um, uh, generation capacity has, has increased. And now it's at a point where in Alberta, um, the cost of generating electricity is about $4 a kilowatt hour on levelized cost of, uh, of uh, electricity generation. Um, and that's equivalent to about $20 a barrel. Um, if, on the other side, if we look at the cost of oil production, now of course oil and gas has been the foundation of our economic development, not just in Alberta, but worldwide uh, for, for decades. And it's really brought us a prosperity that, that we enjoy today. And year on year, there's been a need of uh, increasing oil and gas production um, to satisfy the needs of the economy. And you can see that in the green line, they're showing that growth of uh, that oil and gas has been able to meet that energy demand. But on the other side, if you look at the red line, which is the cost per barrel, you can see that the cost per barrel has been steadily increasing since about 2000. That's the cost of producing a barrel of oil. And along with that, there's an energy cost. The energy cost of finding the oil and extracting it and getting it uh, refined and usable for the economy. 
And that cost stayed the same for about five, uh, for about $5 a barrel up till the year 2000, and then began to climb as this need for the unconventional, as the conventional oil declined and more and more unconventional oil has been incorporated to fill that gap. This is really evident on the next slide. If we look at what's happened in Alberta, um, in southern Alberta, we've had this wonderful um, resource of the light oil fields that uh, follow the Manville trend uh, from, from the uh, Montana border uh, and north to central Alberta. And this is the kind of oil that you drill a well and, and, uh, and you can produce it, it flows or, or can be pumped to the surface. And the same with natural gas, you could drill a uh, natural gas well and, and immediately produce it. Um, but this conventional oil has been declining since the 1970s. Um, and, uh, and the same with natural gas. And the, what has taken its place is the unconventional oil from the oil sands, which has uh, been growing steadily in production from about a million uh, barrels a day back in 2000, or just under a million barrels a day, up to over 3.5 million barrels um, now. And, but the cost of both the energy costs and also the economic cost of producing this oil is much higher than the conventional oil. Um, if we look at the next slide, you can see that the decline in the conventional resources has not been through lack of trying. There's been, over the history, Alberta's history, there's been more than 450,000 wells have been drilled. And about 40% of these were drilled between 2000 and 2019. And all during that time, the conventional uh, production still declined. So in spite of all of this drilling, the conventional oil resource uh, has declined, which is a sign of a mature basin. So if we go to the next slide, the impact of that is, is, is evident. We see rising production costs for decreasing return in Alberta. There's now been more than 95,000 wells that are, need to be abandoned. 160,000 leases need to be reclaimed. And that's on the order of 320,000 acres of land that's um, tied up under inactive oil and gas infrastructure. Conservatively, there are more than $35 billion in lease liabilities for cleanup. There's been $245 million in unpaid property tax to rural municipalities last year. And there's major increases in landowner compensation claims from the Alberta Surface Rights Board. So this is a significant problem. And part of that, my hometown being Tabor, and also we still have, uh, uh, still involved with the family farm south of Tabor, we've seen this impact firsthand. Fortunately, the oil and gas company that is leasing land on our farm is still, is one of the better ones and still paying taxes and lease payments, but we know many of our neighbors are not in that situation. And we can see that there's a tremendous amount of liability that is there. In the MD of Tabor, there's um, over 10,000 wells in the municipality. And today there's only about 25% of them still producing. Um, and only uh, less than 40% of them have actually been reclaimed and returned to a usable state. So there's a large number of, uh, a lot of land tied up um, under these inactive facilities. So this, as I mentioned earlier, is a uh, next slide. Thank you, Alex. Um, that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's this great news that we're seeing increase in, in solar generation and the costs in Alberta are, are reaching a competitive point from a worldwide basis, which is why we're seeing this kind of investment. Mm -hmm. But one of the issues in, typically in solar is to get the costs down. Um, the, the, the preparation work for actually, you know, getting leases in place, doing all the environmental work, getting the power connection, all the things that have to happen for a project. 
are very similar whether you're talking a small project or, or, or a very large project. So in order to keep the costs down, these project development costs are prorated over large projects so that uh, that, that expense is, is, um, is tied against a larger generation volume. And what happens in that case then is it needs major land allocations, and this can take land away from agriculture. Um, it often needs transmission system upgrades, which I'll talk about later, which has a cost impact on all consumers in the province. Um, and it frequently relies on experienced or out-of-province companies or crews for expertise. So what we've done in terms of this renewal project is we basically looked at the opportunity of taking some of these abandoned oil and gas sites, which already have service roads, they already have power connections in many cases, and they're sitting on land that is... Uh, been prepared and, and in good uh, position for um, power generation in southern Alberta um, and being able to reuse these sites for solar rather than starting with a greenfield project. If we look at a comparison, one of the phases of the Traverse project was originally posted as a 400 megawatt development and it would sit on about 2,000 acres of land. Likewise, if we converted only 25% of the inactive leases in the municipal district of Tabor, we would be able to achieve that same 400 megawatts without disturbing any additional agricultural land. One of the other side benefits of this is that there's been already a carbon debt in preparing the site for oil and gas. There's been the diesel fuel um, expended to build the roads, there's been the construction costs for the infrastructure tie-in and all these various things. And then as well to go in and reclaim that back to its initial condition, you have to take the roads out, take out the power lines. There's carbon debt associated with that. Likewise, with putting in a greenfield solar site, there's all of the, the preparation work that has to happen with construction and so on that, that has a carbon cost. So there, whether you're talking economics or whether you're talking environmental, there's a lot of advantages for using these distributed smaller scale projects. Next slide. We had that concept back in 2015, and it's been a long process to try to bring it to fruition. Um, a big part of that came about when we were able to look at some orphan, an orphan well site location in the MD of Tabor to, uh, to look at our first pilot, and this was back in 2018. Um, but when we went to do this, we went to the municipality and found that there was really no framework for municipalities to be able to approve development of this uh, site conversion approach. So we were able to get funding from the Municipal Climate Change Action Center um, and worked with the MDA Municipal District of Tabor to put together some be best practice guidelines from Alberta municipalities. And as part of that, we did um, st major stakeholder engagement uh, with uh, a variety of groups, which I'll touch on in a moment, but all across the board to come up with a, a framework to, to facilitate this work. Next slide. One of the key groups that we dealt with were landowners, because of course landowners have to have the the opportunity to to determine what should happen on their land. This wasn't always the case with oil and gas, of course, because uh, the province uh, owned the resource, and so landowners had to allow that development. Um, but with the renewable energy industry, that isn't the case. Landowners um, have the complete say on whether they're going to accept projects on their land or not. When we did the consultation with landowners, we found that 93% felt that this cleanup of, uh, of oil and gas sites is a high priority and needs to be addressed, and 86% were supportive of renewable energy projects. 
83% were interested in at least um, moderately or, or uh, strongly interested in hosting a solar project on their lands. And 73% felt that the project of this conversion of uh, uh, the abandoned oil and gas sites to solar would be beneficial. And there was uh, no respondents that uh, felt that this would be a negative um, way to go forward. So with the landowner support, uh, we consulted a number of other stakeholders, the Alberta Energy Regulator, who had actually been involved, uh, AER was involved from the beginning of the project in 2015, the Orphan Well Association, Alberta Agriculture, Alberta Environment and Parks, the AUC, um, and Equus, of course, a rural uh, electrification utility, and renewable energy industry. And we had strong cooperation from all of these sectors. Uh, we got, through the course of the project, increasing support from the oil and gas community, um, as well as the increasing dialogue with the electric utility sector. Next slide. Um, so when we completed this policy part of the work, uh, there was a competition opened up uh, with Alberta Innovates and the Municipal Climate Change Action Centre um, to look at a community generation, municipal community generation challenge, uh, where 43 municipalities submitted proposals for funding to look at uh, projects that could be done to bring community generation solar into, uh, into fruition. And uh, the Municipal District of Tabor was one of two projects that was awarded and uh, we received $2.1 million in funding from the province to facilitate the pilot uh, development. This funding was announced uh, in August of 2020, and uh, it's to build two megawatts of solar on, as it would turn out to be two OWA, Orphan Well Association, leases in the MD. Uh, Irican, which is owned by, as I mentioned earlier, the Raymond, Tabor, and St. Mary River Irrigation Districts, will be the owner of these projects. Next slide. Now, it's important to, I guess, important to bring up why IRCAN would be involved. Now, IRCAN already uh, operates three run-of-river hydro stations on the main canal, um, and uh, they have two large microgen solar projects. Um, IRCAN is providing $1.5 million in funding in return for project ownership on this project. Um, and if we go to the next slide, I think it'll become clear why they would be involved. One of the things that, that we see in Alberta is that large-scale generation projects, whether we're talking the large-scale solar and wind projects or whether we're talking about the um, cogeneration projects that use um, wasted heat from the uh, thermal um, oil sand operations to generate electricity, these large-scale projects require um, transmission upgrades, typically to get the power to where it's used. And these transmission upgrades um, are passed on to the consumer um, as cost increases. For example, there was a recent um, uh, transmission upgrade done in central Alberta, and it, uh, it was documented that it's going to cost Alberta ratepayers half a cent per kilowatt hour for the next 40 years to pay for that upgrade. And not only do these transmission upgrades require ex or mean expenses, but they also take land away from agriculture. Um, so since 1999, when deregulation happened and the, and the power market in Alberta was split between um, transmission, uh, transmission companies, um, distribution companies, and power generation companies, delivery charges have tripled. At the time that, um, in 2000, Laurent Torrey, who was, uh, I believe, a chairman of uh, St. Mary River Irrigation District at that time, and also was a, a 
uh, brought into consultation, stakeholder consultation with the Alberta government on utility deregulation, he predicted that um, this would be a major impact uh, on irrigation farming because of the power requirements that uh, that irrigation has for pumping the pumping water to the sites and also uh, to to the fields. And at that time, the over, the power cost for irrigation farmers was seven cents a kilowatt hour. That was five cents for energy, two cents for getting the power to the irrigation equipment for transmission and distribution. As we're sitting today, it costs about 13 cents for distribution and transmission and still about five or six cents for the energy. So this, um, this transmission and distribution cost increases have been a tremendous um, economic impact on the irrigation community. Next slide. And this is increasingly important because as a product of, of this change in climate that we're seeing, we're seeing hotter and drier years. And hotter and drier years increases the demand for, for water, for irrigation, which means that there's more energy expended in pumping that water. Fortunately, the irrigation districts in southern Alberta are some of the sunniest areas in the province. And there's a terrific alignment in between the, the hotter years and drier years and the greater solar energy production. Likewise, irrigation districts are doing a tremendous job in uh, reducing evaporation and, and shepherding water use, stewarding water use, so that um, they're able to meet the water demands. And it's really where they're stepping up as well and helping to provide power generated locally near where the power is being consumed, which reduces the need for transmission buildup. Next slide. So in terms of our pilot projects, as I mentioned, we're building two just under one megawatt per location solar arrays on abandoned well sites. Our goal is to increase distribution power generation to support seasonal irrigation requirements. Each of these sites can support about uh, 50 to 60 quarter section pivot irrigation systems for electricity demand, including the pumps to provide water for those systems can conserve land for agriculture, accelerate the oil field reclamation, and provide an employment and economic diversification for the province, as well as um, revenue for tax revenue for the MD and, and uh, electricity sales for the irrigation districts. So we hope to prove this concept, uh, clarify, uh, solidify the regulatory environment that's being created, and prove the capacity that we can offset transmission build-out requirements by providing power closer to, to where it's needed. Next slide. So the way this is going to look is, as I mentioned, we can get about 900 kilowatts or a little bit over on a three and a half to four acre lease. Typically the oil and gas leases are about a hectare. And so we, in this case, we're taking a little bit of extra land adjacent to the, uh, to the oil and gas lease. Um, but these, each of these sites will generate about, um, well, together they'll be about just under 3000 megawatt hours a year and save just over 1,600 tons of, uh, of CO2 equivalent per year. Over the 30-year lifespan, they'll save over 25 tons of, uh, of CO2 emissions. And because we're reusing these facilities, uh, the cost structure is quite competitive with uh, utility-scale solar. Next slide. So in terms of benefits for the province, if only 10% of the inactive oil and gas sites in the province were converted to solar under this concept, um, it would be over 31 that would make available over 31,000 acres for solar development without taking any more land from agriculture. The increased uh, solar generation capacity would be over 6,000 
megawatt hour megawatts of uh, generation capacity with the production of um, uh, over uh, eight um, billion megawatt hours um, per year uh, and with significant CO2 savings. And so you can see that as well, it would be a tremendous uh, employment generator. And uh, it, and we're working with Iron and Earth, uh, which is a nonprofit organization that is engaged in retraining oil and gas workers to provide the workforce that's, uh, that's needed for this economic transition. Now, next slide. Beyond Alberta, uh, the head of liability management for the Alberta Energy Regulator, Dave Hardy, was uh, recently brought in, or I guess about a year ago, was brought in uh, as part of the World Energy Council to look at this uh, worldwide energy transition that's taking place and the impact that uh, the existing infrastructure has on, on the transition. And it turned out after an extensive um, worldwide study that this uh, oil and gas liability issue and its impact on, uh, on reclamation and, and energy transition mean, um, has the, the impact that there is over $300 billion potential export market for, for this type of work. So I certainly in my career, um, I owe the, the great opportunities that I've had to work, you know, both in Alberta, but also internationally to the far-sighted policies that Peter Lawhey put in place to create an environment in Alberta where we were technology leaders um, for many years and recognized worldwide for that work, as well as um, regulatory leaders. And we now again have an opportunity in this uh, phase of energy transition to take that same stance and to, to take a lead for many jurisdictions around the world that are also dealing with, with this energy transition crisis. Next slide. So in terms of uh, benefits to the community, we believe that this pilot project itself will have a number of benefits to the local community. And we're also working with Canadian Solar on a um, commercialization rollout to, uh, to make this a, a more broad, broadly applicable program within the province and especially within Southern Alberta. Next slide. So our vision is really to do what Alberta does well, and that is to bring together government the energy and oil and gas industry, renewable energy companies, and academic institutions to work together to prove the value of integrating the solar power generation into the mature oil and gas infrastructure. To accelerate the cost-effective uh, closure of these sites, it turns out that we can save about 40% on reclamation in, in these site conversions, develop a model for sustainable energy and uh, an environmental bond associated to make sure that we don't end up with a solar cleanup in 40 years like we're currently dealing with with oil and gas, and to um, help achieve Alberta's clean power generation commitments. We want to work with the retraining oil and gas workers to build this new infrastructure and to help Alberta be a worldwide leader um, in this next generation of, uh, of energy development. So that's uh, all I was really uh, wanting to present for today. Once again, I'd like to acknowledge our, our various partners. And um, as you can see, this is uh, uh, my past house in the Cowichan Valley. And this is what, what is really powering this is uh, $600 in solar panels has made a big difference in, in what you can actually generate. Um, and this is really, I guess, the, the punchline to the story. We're, we're in a time of great opportunity. And I think Alberta's in a wonderful position to be in this time. So thank you and I'd be happy to, uh, I'm really looking forward to the discussion.
thank you, Annalise, for, for shepherding us through all of that. Excellent. Thank you so much for your presentation. That was um, fantastic. Uh, it's really great to hear that um, that there's work done on these sites to you know move Alberta in into a renewable energy situation, right? Um, I'll jump right into first question. Knut Peterson, many thanks, Keith. Very informative presentation. Um, just so you know, Knut is Danish. Yes. <laughs> so, um, just to come back to your, right, to your, um, to some of your family history there. Um, one of the biggest problems with renewable energy is that it's not constant, i.e., nighttime for solar and no wind, even in southern Alberta. What do we do when that happens? Knut, that's an excellent question. And, um, uh, you know, um, my, uh, Danish cousins who who got me really interested in this. Uh, my uh, closest cousin is a was a power engineer for the city of Copenhagen, and during the time that he was uh, this was back in uh, the early 2000s when uh, he was first showing me the major transition they were going through in the wind industry in Denmark. They were going from the small turbines that we were putting up here, like under a megawatt, and they were transitioning to larger turbines. And he actually was running district power plants in the city of Copenhagen, and he was he was in a constant stress state because when the wind would blow they'd have so much power on the grid that uh, he'd have they'd be having to take down the, the generating capacity of the district power plants but then as soon as the wind would stop they were trying to bring the power plants back up to capacity and it was a major stressful situation and one of the things that uh, that turned out very positive for Denmark as Denmark moved forward with the with the wind transition is they ended up signing an agreement with Norway that had hydro dams and one of the issues that was happening in Norway was because um, of climate change, the hydro dams were seeing less water in the reservoirs, and so that Denmark was starting, Norway was starting to struggle with uh, with uh, less available hydropower, and so Denmark and Norway signed an agreement where, when there was surplus wind in Denmark, they would shut the hydro dams in Norway, and. Um, and then allow the water to build up. And then if the wind stopped blowing, then they would immediately open the hydro dams in Denmark, in Norway, and the power would flow back, not just to Norway, but also to Denmark. We have the same kind of opportunity um, between Alberta and British Columbia. If we can improve that tie line network, um, we're facing climate change issues in the reservoirs, the existing mature reservoirs in BC. Um, and uh, we're, we're facing challenges with generation capacity there. But at the same time, we're getting this, this great um, power generation potential, both from wind and solar, at the peak times in Alberta. The other thing that we're doing that's even closer to home is uh, the irrigation districts. Irican has a significant um, uh, Run of River Hydro site near Chen. And um, um, that site has to have some upgrades done to it. One of the things that we've been uh, talking to SMRID about is that during the time these upgrades are being done, um, it could easily be converted to a pump storage site. And so in other words, um, water from the lower reservoir um, during times of, uh, of uh, peak sun or peak wind uh, when power prices drop or at night if the wind's blowing when, when nobody's using the power, that power can be used to pump uh, the water up to the upper reservoir and then when power is needed, that power can be released or that water can be released and generate power instantaneously. 
to back up the grid. This is much more, in terms of peak capacity, it's a bit more expensive than batteries in terms of the, the number of instantaneous megawatts. But in terms of long time storage, the megawatt hour um, cost on that is significantly lower than, than battery storage. So we have great opportunities with the irrigation world in southern Alberta, both in terms of water uh, for power generation and also for the sun we have. And I think that's really our best opportunity to, to create a storage environment, as well as, of course, there's the work being done in hydrogen with um, being able to use surplus power from wind or solar uh, to break water into hydrogen and oxygen and then fuel cells to go back. But at this point in time, that's still more, quite a lot more expensive than the hydro solution. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Would you elaborate on on the training at Madison Head College to transition oil and gas workers? Are there existing skills of oil and of oil and gas workers transferable to these projects? Absolutely. That's a really good question, Laurie. Um, you know, as you know, my my background is is oil and gas. And uh, one of the things that I really became aware of as I started in this renewable energy work is that um, in reality, the two disciplines, the two industries are very much aligned. In both cases, you're effectively looking for the best places where the resources are located, and then you're looking for land for development, and then you look for um, the tie-in infrastructure to get your product to market. Um, and so right across the board, whether you're talking about the engineering skills, project management skills, construction skills, um, or technical skills for, for modeling um, uh, expected outcomes and so on, all of these skills are very transferable. And we started partnering, in fact, about five years ago at the early stages of this project, we started partnering with a nonprofit called Iron and Earth. And Iron and Earth was created uh, by um, oil field workers, oil sands workers, who were facing um, down, uh, unemployment during one of the downturns. And uh, they decided that they recognized that uh, the same kind of skills were needed for renewable energy as for, um, for oil and gas development. And they started lobbying and put together an organization to do fast retraining. So rather than going back and having to do your entire um, training for a specific skill, they help bridge the gap in between the, the skills that the oil and gas workers already have to upgrade them to just the things that they need to know to transition into the renewable energy business. And this is really one of the, the most, uh, I think, a very um, powerful edge that Alberta has and Canada has with the work that Iron and Earth has done in bridging that gap. And now within our own project, within this renewal pilot, we have an agreement also with Medicine at College, which has been a leader in um, renewable energy skill training. And they're partnered with Iron and Earth to take a new course that's been developed that is uh, going to bring in within the first pilot phase as we're building the, the pilot project. There'll be 15 workers going through that uh, skill training program. And it'll be about one week of classroom and theory, and then one week of actual hands-on um, construction and and uh, and work at the site so that will align with our construction probably in the it will be in the spring um, and um, as well uh, we have a, uh, a strong mandate to bring in indigenous workers um, along with uh, oil and gas workers who are underemployed at this point in time um, to make sure that that they can get this um, these skills to work in this new environment um, and um, 
that course will then, once it's been proven in the pilot project, it will be rolled out as a, as a continuing offering to bring people through these to find the skills that they need to work in the new environment. Our next question comes from Ian uh, Hurdle. Hello, Ian. Nice to see that you, you got on today. Um, India has a program that is installing solar panels over canals that allows bifacial capture and decreased canal water evaporation. Could you care to comment, please? Yeah, that's an excellent idea. Um, you know, there are major ish, uh, benefits for, um, you know, in terms of land use and also, um, you know, the, the reflectivity of the water for bifacial panels and uh, and the reducing evaporation. It, it is something certainly to look at within within the province, especially on areas that are um, artificial reservoirs and that would not be disturbing the, the aquatic ecosystem. And um, and also, uh, at the same time, the, one of the, the things we have talked a little bit to SMRID about this, but one of the issues that they're also looking at is using pipelines for a lot of the, the canals to, to even further reduce evaporation. So it's definitely a pro and con, and, and I think it's something that, that should be looked at into the future for sure. When you, um, when you say um, the province, how worried or excited or are you about the political landscape in Alberta in terms of supporting this right now? Yeah, it's one of our biggest challenges. You know, the polarization, um, you know, we, we've seen a polarization in the industry, energy, industry in Alberta that is much greater than many other jurisdictions. You know, if we look around the world, um, you know, I was at a conference in Calgary, in fact, two years ago, and one of the uh, European uh, division presidents of Shell uh, was speaking at that conference in Calgary, and he made the, the statement that Shell has been a leader in the energy business for the past 100 years. And they intend to be a leader in the energy business for the next 100 years, but it will not be in oil and gas. And he was uh, speaking very strongly about the transition that uh, Shell is committing to make in, into um, renewable energy. And you see that in terms of uh, strategic purchases that they're making um, in, in providing consumer electricity and charging stations through, through Europe. Um, they're also uh, investing in renewable energy. We see this as well with, uh, of course, um, Orstat, what used to be the Danish oil and natural gas company. Natural gas company is now um, the world leader in offshore wind. Uh, Stat Oil, which is now Equinor, is becoming, as positioning themselves as well as a world leader in solar and wind development. Unfortunately, the same opportunity has not caught on in, in Alberta yet. And we still see a strong polarization. And in my experience is a lot of this, I believe, is political. Um, and um, you know, one of the things that I still have a big challenge with with my, my oil and gas colleagues is this um, a, a lot of misinformation, both about what the future of, uh, of oil and gas uh, will be over the next 40 years, even without environmental regulation, um, and also um, a misunderstanding or a lack of understanding about how far the technology has moved in things like electric vehicles and and, um, and renewable energy. So I think one of Alberta's biggest challenges right now, Annalise, is the political polarization. Um, and uh, and we need to find ways to to 
have conversations that can can show the benefit. I mean, on the other side of things, when I look at the renewable energy business in Alberta, if you look at some of the top players like uh, Greengate, for example, um, many of these top players are people who've come out of the oil and gas industry, and they've used their skills to to become leaders in renewables in the province. And um, if we harness that, if we really, um, you know, can bring people to the table and, and let people use their skills in this transition in a constructive way rather than, you know, spending money on polarizing, I think we have a much, much brighter future ahead. Okay, our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Are the panels that are being installed static or do they pivot to best align to the sun? That's a very good question. Um, we started off, I mean, as you know, uh, if you have uh, um, trackers which uh, align the, the, the face of the modules to the sun, you get a, a significant increase in, in power output, um, you know, typically 10 to 20 percent. Um, and um, we did look at that initially for these projects, but for the size of projects, and actually, as you may be aware, we're in the middle of a supply crunch right now with uh, worldwide solar. We're, um, you know, we're in a, a very major post-COVID recovery, and uh, um, and a lot of supply chains are are stretched. Um, also, there is somewhat. Irican has a solar site um, south of Bow Island where they have dual access trackers and their experience with that has been a bit complicated. The dual access trackers, um, you know, a bit more maintenance, some um, complications with them. Sometimes they've had some problems there. So from a O&M perspective, uh, they were a bit leaning towards the uh, fixed racking. And then with the current supply environment we have, we, we did elect to go with, um, with fixed racks. So we have a fixed tilt system we'll be putting out. Um, and, but as a as a partial compensation, we will be using bifacial modules. So there is some um, some of the energy picked up from reflected light behind the panels. So the loss of um, uh, of energy from the you know the late summer evenings uh, that uh, you would completely lose from from forward facing panels, uh, we recover some of that with the bifacial modules. But it's a very good question, and I think future projects will probably use the trackers. Um, Knut Peterson has a follow-up. Um, while I'm fully in favor of utilizing energy trade with BC and other areas where stopgap energy may be available, it arguably does require more power lines. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, exactly. Knut, uh, you've hit the nail on the head. And this is where I think if we can do the local things like the um, you know pump storage in the, in the hydro dam systems with irrigation districts and so on, that that is a, a superior solution. And maybe this is where, you know, hydrogen or some of the other storage methods like um, there's gravity storage, weight drop systems and so on that are coming along pretty quickly. And I think that this is really a big part of our answer because, you know, as you, as you point out, the weakness with things like using the hydro dams, which I do think is significant, but the weakness there is um, the more distance there is between where the power is generated and where it's used, the more need there is for the land for these transmission lines, the extra costs are involved. And also it's a risk in terms of infrastructure. You know, if you have a fire in BC, for example, that took down the power lines, you would lose power in Alberta. Um, so, you know, I think one of the things that we need to get to, and I think it's a big challenge that we're facing in Alberta right now, is that there is a drive still in the province to build transmission 
um, and make big generational projects. And my feeling is that um, from a just a uh, energy security, from a sustainability perspective, um, that there is more value in things like microgen and local storage and the local generation. Um, so, yeah, there's there's there are a lot of potentials, and and this technology is evolving rapidly, um, and it's certainly going to be, I think, one of the big issues in the future is is going to be this local generation, local storage. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. There are over 3,000 abandoned and inactive wells in Alberta. What can be done to increase transitioning and or reclaiming these wells? Are there Mm. private investors who are interested or other municipalities? Really good question again, Laurie. Um, Yeah, the 3,000, in fact, those are just the orphans. Those are the ones that are under the orphan well jurisdiction. So those are belong to companies that have gone bankrupt. There's, there's actually, you know, if we count the other ones that are still owned by operating companies, you know, we're, we're in the tens of thousands um, and uh, or hundreds of thousands, actually. Um, there is an interest with, uh, uh, in, with private investors and with industry. What it's going to take, I mean, our biggest obstacle so far in the pilot has been the interconnection. The number one thing that will speed this up is if we can get a guaranteed interconnection process. In Alberta, if you're doing a one megawatt project or anything anything up to five megawatts, if you're consuming the power yourself, you can go under the microgen program. And the microgen program, you have a, a fast track um, path to interconnection. You have guaranteed timelines, uh, you know, within a few weeks or, or a minimum a couple of months or a maximum a couple of months, you can have your interconnection approval and you can get ready to go. Uh, we're still in the place where it takes um, over a year just to get the interconnection agreement in place. Um, and that's that's for a one megawatt project. So, you know, I think our, our best hope for advancement is if we can streamline the interconnection process um, so that we can we can get faster and more guaranteed timelines and, and more secure costing on, on connecting these projects to grid. Um, that that will be one of the biggest uh, advantages. Also, um, we're starting to get interest finally from the oil and gas industry. We do see in southern Alberta where we have these mature fields, there's still a lot of oil left in place, but this oil needs to be recovered with other types of uh, recovery mechanisms, things like CO2 injection or there's a, in fact, where our farm is, it was the pilot for the alkaline surfactant polymer flood that Husky initiated in early 2000s. This is by injecting chemicals with the water um, used to produce the conventional oil. Um, it lo- reduces the surface tension and facilitates the flow of oil from the reservoir. So many of these fields that are abandoned, there's still 70% of the oil left in place. Um, but to recover that oil, it takes a lot of power to, to run the pumps. And this is an opportunity to put solar in on some of the sites that are no longer producing to run the pumps for the the rest of the facility. Um, That we're starting to get interest finally from the oil and gas industry in doing some of this work. Now, in the end, I mean, I have to say very plainly that even if we had all of the breaks in the world, the the type of work we're doing with our new well for solar conversion, we could only address about 10% of the uh, sites in the province. But in terms of proximity to power lines, power lines with capacity and so on. There are other methods like geothermal lithium production and hydrogen production, which can reuse other of these sites. 
but there needs to be greater clarity on the regulatory side about who takes the ultimate liability, um, how is the liability transferred, um, and you know, and many of these things like geothermal also need to be able to connect to grid. So there needs to be a, a clear uh, framework from the province about how they want to support this, and there needs to be better um, connection between the regulators. Energy Futures Lab, in partnership with Canada West Foundation, did a major report on this called the LEAD Report um, that made recommendations to government, and we were able to be part of that. Um, but uh, it, it's it's going to take a clear direction from government, and then if the clear signal is there from government and the regulations are in place, uh, there is money in industry. Like, for example, I, there I'm, I'm aware of a... Uh, Many of our companies in Alberta are having trouble, energy companies are having trouble attracting investment because they aren't meeting uh, the ESG metrics, the um, um, society, environment, society and government metrics that many investment companies demand. Um, and in some ways we've been doing a bit of a um, campaign to discredit the need for this ESG measurements or to just claim we have good ESG numbers. But we need to have these things being measure, measured and being verifiable, which we have not done a great job at. Um, if we can do that, and part of this site transition is part of, of uh, improving those metrics, um, we can attract investment money that will come into the province. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think it's a really holistic approach. And also by, you know, doing these sites, like for us to do, say, 10 megawatts, it takes 10 sites. But we may be in a situation where, um, you know, there's 40 sites around. We can bring crews in, reduce the cost on all of the reclamation by doing the, the work at the same time. And um, so, we, you know, it's proving, I think, that we, get, we can be a stimulus for reducing the cost and accelerating these site closures. And um, at the same time, we can improve these metrics and attract more investment. But really, it, it's going to come down to a strong signal from government that they want to support this activity. Okay. Um Knut um, Peterson is um, has some uh, comments. You are familiar yes. with Perry. You are familiar with Perry Potato Farm in Chin. Uh, yes. They have been using their organic anabol anabolic digest digester gas to generate electric energy, but are now upgrading the gas and selling it to BC. Yes. If, if more local organic digesters were available they could potentially pick up the slack. Lots of available options if there is money to be made. <laughs> That's an excellent point, Knut. Thank you for bringing that up. I was just uh, talking to my colleague, uh, uh, Ryan Torini from Canadian Solar, and he brought up exactly this uh, point about uh, Perry Farms. And I do want to commend you, Knut, and all of the people at Perry Farms. You have set a very high standard in in uh, sustainability and I think that's a huge credit to the province and you're right you know I think if there's money to be made these things will grow and and uh, you know I really appreciate Paris Farms leadership and and uh, you know the kind of work that's being done we do have tremendous opportunities in the province we just need to do more I think the, the province could do a better job of showcasing these very positive examples and maybe spend a little less money on trying to fight the perception of um, bad environmentalists trying to close down the province that uh, that has been painted. So maybe if we can change the messaging and, and, and talk about our strengths, I think we've got a very bright future. Okay, our next uh, question comes from Mark Goodall. Isn't the deregulating 
sorry, isn't the deregulated situation in Alberta actually beneficial because private companies can profit from installing solar as apparently is happening with the big solar projects? Should not the building codes require solar ready roofs on all new construction? Those are two really excellent points. Um, and uh, you're absolutely right that the deregulation and, and the power market for generators is what is you know, making Alberta a hub for all of Canada. That's why Amazon uh, is, you know, for example, funding that wind farm or, or, or the solar farm in Traverse because they're buying their renewable energy for all of Canada from that one location. Alberta's market for generation is a perfect model for the kind of work that, that we're doing and has really enabled us. However, what's really important to note is that the power market in Alberta is only deregulated on the generating side. And this free and open competition that's happened in generation has kept the power prices low. You know, our, our energy price per kilowatt hour has remained at about five cents, five to seven cents for, for many years because of this competitive market. But the market is not competitive in distribution and transmission. These are regulated monopolies. And these regulated monopolies that are running the transmission and distribution lines, they have a guaranteed profit of 8%, but that profit is only made when they can build new build-outs. So if they want to increase their overall profit, they get the same profit margin, they have to actually increase their asset base, which means they've got to build more wires. And this is an old model for power systems. It's like, you know, big central generation and lots of, you know, wires to get the power to the load. Um, you know, this is crippling. Um, the, um, the the potential for small-scale distributed generation, decentralized generation within the province, because there is so much um, emphasis placed on the way that we used to do things, because all of the regulatory framework is set up in the way we used to do things. Like, for example, there was, a, when Alberta was first privatized, one of the things that was done was that uh, the Alberta government at that time, in the late 2000s, was trying to, to reduce uh, methane emissions from flare gas, from oil and gas production. And one of the ways that they came up with to reduce this was to mandate oil and gas companies to put power generation if they if they were close to power lines so that they would basically use the flare gas to, to generate electricity and then sell that to the grid. Um, it turned out that they, when they were doing this, they recognized that it was actually saving transmission cost. Um, because they weren't taking as much power off the transmission lines to feed the loads within the distribution network. Um, and the A was that time it was the EUB mandated that that extra money be given to the power generators. So for a long time in Alberta, we had that same rule apply to solar generators. If you were generating solar in a distribution network, you got the credit for the savings on transmission that the other customers in the distribution network um, would have otherwise paid. So they still paid for transmission, but they paid it to the local generation. And we just lost that credit this year. Um, so there's been more and more push to centralize things into these monopolies, so we, you know, the, in fact, which are not even owned by, for the most part, by Albertans, you know, um, are, are owned by uh, uh, US-based companies. And, um, and to consolidate profits there rather than creating an opportunity for distributed generation within the province. So it's a big challenge. And I do really like the idea of mandating the um, the construction codes to be able to uh, put solar, have things solar ready. I think that's a big part of where we can go in the future as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, our next question comes from uh, Laurie Schultz. With respect, 
With respect to misinformation or lack of understanding of this technology, are there any documentaries or reports that would assist with a better understanding of this opportunity? Well, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I found, in fact, um, the, the breakthrough thing for me uh, is there's, it depends on how much detail you want to get into, I suppose, but Deutsche Bank put out a report in 2015 uh, where they showed worldwide um, that uh, and and documented that uh, the, the proof that the solar industry had reached a point of cost competitiveness with uh, with fossil fuels, and that they they correctly predicted the uh, that that uh, this that the solar generation costs would continue to decline um, along the same kind of trend as we saw semiconductors uh, uh, going through in the 1990s. Um, in terms of power performance for versus cost, and um, and that uh, that oil and gas would would continue to rise, um, and so that that uh, I could send a link to that. It's a it's a very you know powerful. It's now five years old, but their predictions were were spot on. Um, so that Deutsche Bank report I found one of the most informative, and it really looks at all of the different aspects, but particularly uh, near the economic and technical side. Um, have to think a little bit more about uh, you know some other good suggestions, but uh, um, you know it, it is really something that is just the technology is changing so so rapidly that um, it it's can be hard to keep up, and um, you know it's it's uh, whatever I would point out to you today would would be probably <laughs> be obsolete in two years time, but uh, I'll I'll see if I can come up with some things and I, I can send put a link on the on the website. Okay, thank you. Um, Ian Hurdle, first of all, fair warning to our speaker, since Mark, and that's Mark Goodall, who's been asking questions, and yes. Ian, and Ian uh, himself are early solar panel adapter, adopters yeah. 10 years ago. So, yes. And then Ian's question, would a distrib distributed generation and micro generation have aided in the power cold snap shutdown in Texas? Well, I can tell you, I've been in a number of debates about this. <laughs> uh, I think so. In the in the bottom line, yes. Um, but you know that Texas situation had so many layers to it that uh, that would be a topic of a whole other hour-long conversation. <laughs> but uh, the more that we can have generation and load coincident and storage coincident, the more robust things will be. And uh, you know, I, one thing for sure, uh, living here on Vancouver Island, we, we live on the Maple Bay properties, which is partly up by Mount Suhalem. And we do, in the odd time we get snow, we get power outages. And um, we have a, uh, a plug-in Prius, which has a, uh, a six uh, kilowatt um, uh, hour storage um, battery on board. And I've got an inverter, which will certainly keep our lights on if we get power outages. So the more that, you know, we're, we're seeing these transitions, you know, things like the, you know, the Ford electric pickup and, you know, uh, Toyota just announced their uh, RAV4 full electric, but that they're surprising everybody with, um, you know, these, the electrification side of things is, is not only much more efficient, like if you, if you look at say miles per, per uh, kilowatt hour energy use in between fossil fuel and electricity, but also we have these distributed batteries that are going to be rolling all over the roads. And out here on Vancouver Island, you can't drive out of our neighborhood without passing six Teslas. Um, that we're seeing a transition that, that 
that is a huge difference. And, and I congratulate you on being early adopters. But you know now you can have your power walls or your electric cars charging at the uh, when they're plugged in as well, and then you can pull power off the the batteries at night. So <laughs> we're we're in a new world, and uh, it's pretty exciting times. Excellent. Uh, Laurie Schultz just says a follow up. Is there a document called Orphan? streaming on gem that would provide further information i may have the name incorrect you're absolutely right laurie and i need to bring that up I, we were invited to be part of that documentary it's called orphaned i can put a link to that in the in the uh, chat stream um it was actually done by jillian mccurcher she uh is a daughter of two geologists and actually had a career in the oil and gas industry before she went into filmmaking and um, she filmed that documentary last year in southern Alberta, or I guess earlier this year. And it just streamed, uh, started off, uh, was broadcast actually on CBC second week in October. And um, it's now available on GEM. And it, it's a beautiful work of art, it, uh, but also highly informative about the, the situation in Alberta. And uh, I highly recommend it as a, as a good starting point to seeing where we can go and, and where we are in this transition. Excellent. Thank you. And that's it for the questions. Um, thank you so much for your uh, presentation, Keith. Um, do you have a, a take home message for our viewers? Well, I've been thinking about that and I, um, you know, I guess um, my take home message would be that we have tremendous opportunities ahead of us. You know, there's a lot of um, uh, gloom and doom about uh, where where the province is, and and um, you know I recognize there's a lot of people going through struggles. Um, I don't want to minimize that, but we really do have a situation with the workforce, with the talent, with the the kind of um, um, innovative capacity that that uh, has been the trademark of Alberta for for these you know for certainly the last few generations. That these um, there's a lot of opportunities ahead. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where, where the province goes in the future. Excellent. There's many thanks in the queue. Um, uh, Danish, Kunud uh, thanks you in Danish. I won't. Uh, Manu tak. Yeah, uh, <laughs> tak is right. Um, I hope your presentation will spark much interest. Then Laurie Schultz, Keith, thank you for your thought provoking presentation. It gives one hope for the opportunities within the energy transition. And then Ian Hurdle, thanks, lucid, well-rounded. Um, on behalf of SACPA, thank you so much for your time here today and for your very insightful talk. Um, and for the folks at home, I hope you'll join us next week with Lauren Fitch, insights on ecological effects of coal development in the Eastern Slopes, that's on Wednesday next week, because we are honoring um, November 11th Remembrance Day. So we have moved our session to Wednesday at noon Alberta time, and I hope you join us then. Um, thanks.